Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One topic that we have not discussed so far on this podcast is the Native American experience around universal income. Now, we talk a lot about Alaska, and we know that they have their permanent fund dividends up there that provides everyone with an annual check. But there's actually a number of Native American tribes across the country that have similar programs where the money comes from what they get out of the casinos that they run there. The Roosevelt Institute looked at a particular case with the Eastern Band of Cherokees, but there hasn't been really a broader conversation on this topic in the basic income space. So I got to speak with Thomas Clem. He is a social work student who is doing qualitative research on the Native American experience receiving cash transfers. And he's also a citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. So here's Owen talking to Thomas Clem. Thomas Clem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Owen. I uh, really appreciate it. Great. So can you just tell me how you first heard about basic income and what made it an important issue to you? So I was uh, thinking about that today again, and actually I, I finally remembered where it was. There's this guy named Eddie Wong, who is like a kind of famous chef, lawyer, uh, had a TV show on Viceland. I heard him on a podcast actually talk about it, and it was not an important issue to me until much later when I uh, started thinking about becoming someone who does research. I started becoming interested in what people with PhDs do. And then I started to think about what would I like to research and basic income kind of re-entered to the picture then. So that was probably a year after I heard about it that I started thinking about it seriously um, and giving it the time of day. Yeah, and we'll get into why why it was a significant issue for you. Um, you've written about what are called per capita programs within indigenous nations in the United States. Could you explain what these are and how they work? Yeah, so um, per capita distributions um, are the result of casino revenue allocation. Um, So there are tribes um, that are able to own and operate uh, casino gaming um, through the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which was passed in 1988. Um, And they're able to develop what are called uh, revenue allocation plans. And through those revenue allocation plans, they can um, distribute cash direct cash payments to citizens um equally and so the amounts that that is the frequency of that is totally dependent on each tribe there's 573 federally recognized tribes um not all of them have casino gaming um several do so there's a lot of different ways that uh looks so what what commonly what i'll probably start saying instead of revenue allocation plan is, is wrap so people talk about, you know, was our RAP approved, things like that. So you're just getting into it. Can you give us a sense of the the various populations of indigenous nations that are receiving this payments and about how much they're getting on a, you know, a monthly or a yearly basis? So um, the Eastern Band Cherokees program is the largest that I have co- happened upon so far. They have about 16,000 people enrolled as tribal citizens. So that is the most I know of. And that's also the one that I know uh, generally how much they give um, out to each citizen. And that ranges from typically $4,000 to $6,000 a year. And I believe they uh, distribute that biannually. There are other tribes such as the Ho-Chunk Nation that um, has about 12,000 enrolled citizens. Um, they have they um, distribute per capita payments. They have been 
somewhat public about it. So that those are two of the larger ones. And then there are tribes that range in, in the hundreds uh, who only have hundreds of uh, citizens. So who have this as well. Uh, the largest, some of the largest nations in the uh, within the United States, such as Cherokee Nation or uh, the Navajo Nation, um, which are both over three hundred thousand enrolled members, do not have per capita payments. So, and the reason a tribe would or would not have per capita payments, would or would not have casino, often is due to location. Um, so, generally speaking, tribes that are closer to more urban areas, larger populations, are able to have more successful gaming. So, for instance, um, you know, in in Montana or in South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, parts of the Southwest, very rural, very isolated. Um, if they do have gaming, they just don't have enough people to bring to gamble to produce the kinds of profits to make per cap payments to everyone. So instead, when they do have gaming, often that just goes into social services. Uh, Red Lake Ojibwe is a good example of that. They do have gaming, but they're far up north, and it just goes into social services, and I believe primarily elder care up there. So you yourself are doing some research on on these per capita programs. Uh, what are the questions you're seeking to answer with your research? You know, so with the project that I, I, I'm recently wrapping up, I, I, I looked at my own nation, the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians per capita program, and essentially... You know, I was just looking at the proposal again, kind of going over it. I uh, set out to ask just how these payments have either affected people positively, if at all, or negatively, if at all. It's been in existence for a while, so I kind of wanted to know what people's experience has been thus far. And especially with uh, older folks who have been around and were adults before and after, just the differences they've seen. You know, and I, I knew mi a minimal amount about basic income when I first started doing it, um, comparatively to now. Um, so there are certainly things that I left out that I, I hopefully will get to engage with later. But uh, I definitely found some interesting stuff, and even stuff I wasn't expecting from my own, even though I'm part of the community. Yeah, and could you give us a sense of just what you found? So the biggest thing that everyone said that I talked to is they have better, more reliable transportation. It's hard to overstate how important reliable transportation is in rural areas. Um, it's, it's the difference between having a job, getting to doctor's appointments, you know, it's everything. There's no public transportation out, you know, where, where I'm from. So um, that was the biggest one that everyone mentioned up front. Like when I asked them, what has been the positive effect? Almost everyone, the first thing they said was, I have better transportation. I was also quite surprised at the amount of people who reported they were actually able to upgrade their housing. You know, one bedroom to two bedrooms, apartment to being able to rent a house with a yard for their kids, things like that. I, I was very surprised at how much of an effect that that had. I was also surprised a fair bit by still how skeptical people were about the income in general, um, despite all that. And, you know, when push came to shove, what it looks like is essentially no one's really has much to bad, bad to say about receiving the income, you know, but there is a lot of political issues surrounding that, that make it sometimes seem negative or feel negative or be negative. Um, so that can come from internal um, politics within the nation. It can come from uh, stigma 
that people receive from the outside community. Yeah, I understand that you know stigma generally is a, an issue in your community, and uh, and that the per capita payments can exacerbate that in some cases. Yes, yeah, so certainly. So there is this idea that natives are dependent on government support, and there's a myth of government checks of like not having taxes and things like that um, within the United States and. And while there are these programs that do exist that are collectively owned businesses within these nations that distribute these checks, which are not from the U.S. government, but from our own governments, there's a vast majority of tribes that do not have that. And a lot of the tribes that are the poorest and in the most isolated areas don't have it. So there's, it's not to say that, you know, I'm not here to say essentially is that all Native Americans are experiencing basic income right now, or they're experiencing like thriving and free checks and nice cars, you know. This has happened to communities like mine, which are very fortunate to be close to urban areas. Um, but there's a long, long, long way to go in a lot of communities. And so it becomes, you know, important to me, and it sounds like important to the, a lot of the people I interviewed to make sure people don't miss that point. And also, you know, it's just, it feels bad for when you are judged like you don't work hard and you get things you don't deserve and you didn't earn that and why don't I get my check and da 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 you know comments like that can weigh on a person to say the least you know can become extremely frustrating and it's it's a constant point of conversation you know a, a lot of times yeah that's very understandable and it makes me wonder how you think about uh, an, uh, the idea of universal basic income because on one hand, it would be universal, and so everyone would get it if we were doing a, a full federal program, let's say. But uh, I'm wondering if you still have concerns around these same issues cropping up. So I, I can only imagine that it would be. And, you know, one thing that I, I would imagine would happen, you know, because I've seen it and heard it happen in other communities, is there will be people who say, I don't need it. Like, I don't use it. These people are dependent. I'm not. There's still that separation will still happen, like of, you know, the people who, well, they're dependent on it and they don't do anything. I mean, I do use mine, but I use it responsibly, you know? So I imagine things like that will happen. As far as if, you know, from my experience with basic income, do I think it'd be successful? You know, I think I told, you know, I, I've told people before, I, I'm like pretty skeptical or this or that, but you know, when I think about it, at least in my own life, and I don't know for everyone, as a person who's received this kind of um, stipend, it's affected my life in a lot of amazing ways and give me freedom to do things um, that I normally wouldn't have. And like I was even thinking today, like if I hadn't received a basic income, I don't know that I'd be here talking about basic income on the basic income podcast. You know what I mean? I wouldn't, I, I've been able to work less and focus on school more and get into research and do things that were not, you know, going to be available, available to me. Otherwise, because I, I have I get to worry a little less about certain things. Um, so I am very hopeful that it could do a lot of good too. One of the other things that I'm deeply concerned would happen with a basic income, though, is I've seen how basic income can affect, or I've seen how per capita payments and the, these kinds of things have made people want to tighten uh, citizenship requirements in these tribal nations. And I only I can only imagine that that could be the same, if not worse, in the United States, and that that kind of um, rhetoric could be well, harmful. Yeah, I I totally agree, and I feel like that's something that 
to my knowledge, to you know, to my exposure to the basic income world, hasn't fully grappled with, and is one of these things where, as basic income maybe gets closer to happening, we're really going to have to figure out stuff around immigration policy and just how universal universal is. So, jumping over to a, a slightly different topic, you've written about. How, how there are a lot of questions that we can answer about basic income through studying the experience of indigenous nations. Why is that the case? And, and what, sort of, um, what sort of questions might you have in mind? So I think one of the most interesting things that can be found, or one of the most important things we can look at, um, and what I'm most interested in, is how it has affected economic mobility. So natives uh, are pretty consistently the most impoverished uh, demographic uh, within the United States. Um, and I know in my community was was very low income before per capita came around, and, and it still mostly is. It's not like we're we're like all middle class or something now. Um, there's still a lot of poverty, but um, I, I really wonder how this has affected a, a group of people who have been affected by things like colonialism, racism that have led to poverty. How this helps them step out of that, if it does help them step out of that, and you know, how is it helping? Is it because they're getting more, people are getting more education? Is it because people have nicer cars and they can get to better jobs? You know, how are people, um, how are people who are low income being affected by this? You know, and also how does this affecting family dynamics and how is this affecting, you know, even um, like how people view other tribes? So there's like, I know in my own community sometimes people talk about oh this tribe has this much and that's not good or it's not bad so um people have their own perspectives on on what is good and what is bad from their own so i think people have a lot of insight i think there's a lot of community leaders um who have a lot of insight on the problem problems or um solutions that have resulted from this kind of thing um i think it's also interesting Different tribes have decided to put more into social services and less into um, actual cash payments, and some have done a lot more into cash payments and and less into uh, social programs. And I, I'm interested. To see, I wonder how that has gone. And and the, you know, there's a lot to find out with that. There's also tribes that have had cash stipends, had per capita, and it's gone now because you know one of the things about this is that. Per capita payments are based on a business. Businesses go through swings. Some businesses close. So, what are the implications for when this is there and then it's gone? And and I'm I'm definitely interested in that, especially um, as I think about the ethics of you know certain basic income experiments that you know have an eventual end. I think there's a lot we can learn from from that in that regard too. One thing I do want to say though is. Tribes have no responsibility to reveal anything about their per capita programs to us. You know, that is entirely um, their discretion. And I totally understand why they would want to keep things private. I totally understand skepticism towards academia. I certainly harbor a lot of that. And I hope that when I'm going to get answers to some of these questions, I'm also bringing information to them as a result of this research that is helpful to my nation but it's helpful to other nations so we can see what's working best and what's not working um, so that we can build them and and make them stronger. I would hope folks aren't hearing what I'm saying and being like, these are data mines that we can just go in and get all this good stuff. You know, I think there's a lot of relationships that would need need to be built first. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because, yeah, it is, you know, we are um, always, always happy to have more information on basic income and on cash transfers. And yeah, to have this you know, wealth of potential information, I'm sure, is tantalizing to a lot of people. But yeah, of course, we have to, you make an excellent point around, um, this isn't just data, these are people, these are lived experiences, and some of the most marginalized people in the United States. So along those lines, do you feel that the per capita programs are being run effectively? I know it's we're actually talking about many different programs with many different variables, but if you can make any statements generally, yeah, are, would you say they're being run effectively or uh, effectively, or are there changes you would propose? So I can say that I'm really proud of how my nation has handled things. And I'm really glad that we tend towards a 50-50 split on cash, direct cash payments and social programs and, and things like that, um, or around that percentage. Um, I think monthly is a good idea, you know. Um, but as, as for other tribes, effectively, you know, I think a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. And, you know, there wasn't really a playbook on this before. There wasn't a lot of information to draw from for how to do it effectively. So a lot of people have done a lot of different things. Um, I know with my nation that we had, we, we had, we got gaming a lot later than a lot of tribes in Michigan and in the Great Lakes. So we were able to see some of the fallbacks um, or the drawbacks of how certain programs were run. You know, I definitely don't think like giving young, I don't like the lump sum when you're an 18 year old and you give a person a lot of money or something like that. Things like that I don't think are good ideas. You know, I think the closest you can make it from what I've seen when it's closer to like a paycheck every two weeks, once a month, that seems to be better. You know, but it's hard to say, I, you know, I, I think that just varies. And, you know, I really, you know, I can't even speak to how people have done things in California or really on the East Coast or other areas of the country necessarily either. So I, I guess that's my answer is it, it's hard to say. There's just a lot of variables. <laughs> that was Owen speaking with Thomas Clem on the Basic Income Podcast. So one thing that really struck me about that conversation is actually hearing about what sort of universal payments programs exist out there and how large actually some of them are. I feel like typically when we talk about, well, what is the closest that we have to universal basic income in the United States now, we generally say Alaska with their annual checks, but it sounds like in some cases here, these tribes are actually distributing annual dividends that are considerably larger than what Alaska pays. Yeah, and I feel like we don't always think of it as a real program because it comes from casino money typically, but the reality is that, yeah, they're getting cash transfers that are some of the biggest in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I just thought it was a good example of what cash can do and how there might be an almost universal benefit. Uh, Thomas Clem mentioned transportation as someone where people just became more mobile when they got cash transfers. And that's something where even if you could anticipate that that would be the, the biggest benefit from people, cash is still able to achieve that benefit. It's not like they had to give people cars or improve their roads. And of course, there could be work to do on that front as well. But I just thought it was another example of how cash is so versatile. Right, one of those cases where if, if you had been planning an entire support program for, for the tribe, that might not have occurred to you, that depending on where you're coming in from, that 
it's just, it's really impossible to know every particular case that someone's going to need to, to best support their lives. And, and yet, as you say, get another example of how giving people that agency to decide for themselves really so often is the best form of support. Another thing that really stood out to me here was the fact that even in many of these tribes where they have these universal payments, there's still skepticism. That it's not something where people are fully sold that something like a universal basic income is the way to go. So I think that's, that's, that's worth pausing around, I would say, because I feel like we do so often think, oh, once people get used to this concept, then it's going to be much easier to be able to advocate for something larger. But in this case, it seems like maybe there's other forms of resistance. And so as we're thinking about how we move this forward, we really need to figure out to better understand what actually is going on there in people's heads. And so that our advocacy can, can really move people in the right direction. Yeah, the question that I had during that conversation that I, I haven't really answered in a, a coherent way for myself is to what degree universalism solves the problem because he, he spoke a lot about the stigma of, of being a Native American, which, you know, they're some of the most marginalized people in the country already, and the cash transfer that they're getting that other people are not can add to that stigma. So part of me was thinking, well, if everyone gets it, then, then there's nothing to be stigmatized about. But then you run into the issue of the citizenship or borders around the United States itself, and obviously that's an ongoing issue, uh, about as hot as it's ever been in this country. So you, uh, you, you don't solve the, the, br the bigger issue um, just through universalism. But I wonder if you solve this micro issue, though, yeah, open question, I guess. That brings up another point that stood out to me, which is the fact that there was this desire to tighten citizenship and, and what that would say for what, how people would view immigration policies. And so, yeah, and that's another area where I think that we, we still have a lot to learn, that that's something we need to better understand as, as we move forward. And so how do, we, how do we structure this in a way that it doesn't, that the impact is not going to, to cause people to consider those not receiving the benefits right now to be outsiders? Yeah, and I feel like there are issues that we're to some degree putting off until we get closer to an actual basic income in the United States, and that might be the biggest one. The whole who gets it, who doesn't, that that could be the whole crux of the program right there. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. And if you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. We're also up on Spotify now if you'd like to check us out there. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.